As Chair of Inigard, I'm delighted to welcome you to the International Virtual Conference, The World of Work, The Great Reset. We have six fantastic sessions with participants and speakers from across the globe. Uh, you're very welcome to this session. For those that don't know, Inigard is an international employment law network across 14 countries. I really do hope that you enjoy the next session and please feel free to participate in the networking sessions afterwards. Thanks very much. Hi there, after some technical difficulties, uh, it seems we are on. Um, I, welcome to this morning's session, Equal Pay, How Far Have We Come or Are We Going Backwards? Um, I uh, will first introduce you to uh, the speakers that we're very lucky to have. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, sorry, it has started. Apologies, I just thought another technical difficulty was, was happening. So the first speakers that were, uh, I'll introduce you to the speakers that we're very lucky to have here with us today. Some very um, fantastic uh, panelists, um, including Senator Ivana Bacic. Uh, Senator uh, Bacic Ivana is the, um, uh, she's in the, the Upper House of Parliament in Ireland. She's the Reed Professor of Criminal Law, Criminology and Penology at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, she's a qualified barrister, um, a fellow of Trinity College, a senator for Dublin University. Um, she's researched uh, feminist theory of law and equality law, co-authored a major study on gender in the legal professions, and she's the Labour Party spokesperson on children, disability, equality and integration. Uh, welcome, Ivana. Uh, the uh, next speaker I will introduce is Claire Darwin, who's a barrister in the UK uh, with Matrix Chambers. Claire is a highly regarded employment specialist, employment and discrimination uh, specialist. Um, having worked in that area since she was called to the bar in 2005. Um, she's a member of the Equality and Human Rights Commission's panel of preferred counsel. And most famously, she represented the broadcaster Samira Ahmed in her equal pay claim, uh, successfully uh, represented her in the equal pay claim against the BBC, which is a very high profile case. Um, then uh, last but not least is Carl Frederick Hedenstrom, uh, a lawyer in Sweden with a partner in Morris Law and a colleague of mine in Inningard. Uh, who, like myself, specialises in employment law matters and has also taught law in Stockholm, in Stockholm University for 20 years. So brings a, a wealth of learning to this, uh, this matter, including some uh, specific insights into what Sweden has done in this area, which is very interesting, um, and Scandinavia generally. Um, so just to set the scene and not to, to go on too much myself, not being the, the expert the three panellists are, um, but I do find it helpful just to kind of to um, first uh, just remember, bear in mind that there are various different elements to this issue. So, I mean, we have um, the fact that there's a, there's a gender in unemployment gap, uh, so meaning basically that more men are in employment than, than women. Uh, at the moment, that gap seems to have um, stagnated at about 12%. Um, women are more likely to work in part-time or on a temporary basis. Uh, and women constitute, where women constitute 48% employee, of employees, where 58% of minimum wage earners, and in fact, 68% of people who work below minimum wage. Now, a lot of these statistics may be European, um, so I bear that in mind, uh, that, that largely my research would have uh, given me European information. Um, and then you have the fact that there are very gendered professions, such as teaching, uh, nursing, carers roles being dominated by women, I suppose traditionally engineering and construction being dominated by men. Um, and then basically what 
the way to, the way I'd look at it is that women and men working in different worlds, and the, the world that men work in is a higher paid one than the world that the, the way that women work in. Just to put it very simplistically, and then when you get uh, men and women coming together in the same world, uh, even then you have men and women doing the same roles, but men being paid demonstrably higher than than women in those roles. Um, so the, the problem of inequality rises in a, a number of different ways, which means it's a it's a war on multiple flanks. Um, and it has a knock-on effect on, on pension equality, meaning women uh, still in, in 2018 in Europe were at 30% less, um, uh, receiving pensions at 30% less, uh, lower value than men, meaning that we're at higher risk of living in poverty when we're um, at pension age, which is, which is very serious and, and could only get worse. Um, so the questions of how far have we come, are we going backwards? They're very vexed. Um, progress uh, has been made, if you were supposed to look from 100 years ago, um, but I think our panelists might agree, uh, well, feel free to disagree, that over the last number of years, it, that isn't necessarily the case, uh, particularly since about 2013, the, the, um, the, I suppose, the recovery from the last recession. Uh, since then, things have, have not really, the progress we'd like to have seen having been made hasn't been made. Um, Ursula van der Leyen has said it is a, it's going to be a priority of hers, and the European Commission has published um, a proposed directive on pay transparency, um, a kind of a multi-pronged approach together with, um, you know, the right to switch off and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not the, that's not going to solve everything, pay transparency. And I know Ivana, um, once she's, I, I'm afraid, must have dropped out <laughs> this morning's unfortunate difficulties. But we'll be back in to talk about what she has, the work she has put into tra pay transparency uh, legislation and the, and the difficulties that she, fa she has faced there. Um, I suppose in in the in Havana's absence, Claire, do you want to talk about? I mean, the UK has that legislation. What's been your experience? Well, rather mixed, Reagan. We we've literally taken two steps forward and now gone two steps backward again. So the the regulations, the gender pay gap regulations in the UK, came into force on the sixth of April, twenty seventeen. Um, and they apply to employers with a headcount of more than two hundred and fifty employees. Uh, and essentially, uh, all employers have to publish information about their gender pay gap once a year. Um, slightly different um, duties on public sector employers and private and voluntary sector employers. Um, so you have to publish information, but only in relation to employees. So LLP members and partners and other highly paid individuals are left out of the data, uh, which one, one might have thought is a, a fairly major omission. So the gender pay gap reporting data first had to be published um, by the 4th of April 2018. So that was year one. And then year two was published by the 4th of April 2019. And what was interesting was that the year two data showed no real improvement. Um, but in fact, perhaps too early to assess how well the regulations were working at that stage, because, of course, um, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that salary data will have been set already by the time that the first year's data was published. Um, a number of um, issues, really, about how gender pay gap re reporting is working in the UK. Firstly, all you have to do is publish the data. You don't have to provide any explanation. Uh, you don't have to publish an action plan. Um, and most employers have just published the data. There's no definitive list of all the employers who are required to publish that data. And the figures aren't subject to auditing by the Equality and Human Rights Commission or anyone else. Um, and what we've discovered is that as a nation, we're clearly incredibly bad at maths. 
Um, so the Guardian and also the Financial Times have had some fun with this. Um, so the Financial Times in particular, I think, played a fantastic role in terms of pointing out gender pay gap reporting figures that couldn't possibly work. And they did an analysis for the year one data and they found that one in 20 UK companies had submitted gender pay gap data um, and reported numbers that were statistically improbable and almost certainly inaccurate. Um, the Guardian highlighted that 17 UK companies had reported a bonus gap of more than 100%. Um, and The Guardian also found one UK company that reported an hourly mean gender pay gap of 106.4%. Um, so in other words, for every £100 earned by a man, a woman would pay uh, would earn six pounds forty. <laughs> would pay six pounds forty. Um, so I, I mean, I, I think we're probably getting a little bit better at this, but there has there has been some fun in terms of the statistics. I also think there's been um, so, some interesting explanations provided. Uh, I remember quite clearly the explanation provided by Phase Eight, uh, which is a, a women's retail chain. They had a gender pay gap of over sixty percent. I think when asked to explain this, they said. Well, it's quite simple. All the men are in senior leadership roles and all the women are in low paid roles. And I thought, well, as, as a women's retailer whose clients are mainly professional women, I'm not sure you've done yourself any favours there. Um, so it's a few PR disasters along the way. Um, but when I say two steps forward and then two steps backward, um, we've had four years of gender pay gap reporting. Year three, uh, was supposed to, there was supposed to be reporting in April 2020 uh, and of course because of the pandemic it was suspended entirely for the 2019-2020 reporting year so that means that employers didn't have to report their gender pay gap data at all for that year and they're not expected to do so at a later date and then year four which would have been um, due to report in April 2021 so very shortly um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission recently announced that enforcement of gender pay gap reporting for this year, year four, won't begin until the 5th of October 2021. So although they said, oh, it would be great if employers could go ahead and publish their data anyway. I mean, what employer is going to do that <laughs> ahead of the deadline, particularly when there's no enforcement action going to be taken if you don't report until October? And what we've seen so far is that most employers tend to wait until the very last minute to publish their data. And that's because basically they can avoid big PR disasters that way. Because if everyone publishes right at the last minute, then you know you can essentially guarantee that someone will have a worse gender pay gap than you, and your gender pay gap won't be attracting the headlines. Whereas if you're really conscientious and early, then it will be your gender pay gap that is being reported. And, and I think what's happened in year three and year four of gender pay gap reporting. So in other words, um, you know, employers are too busy for this. I think that sends a pretty worrying message um, about the importance given by this government to gender equality. And I know you said, Reagan, in your introduction, that the EU is prioritising gender equality. Well, I think it suffices to say that Boris and the rest of the men in his government are not. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that, that even if we had taken some steps forward, uh, by just the, the very making of the, the regulations and the fact that we were having increased transparency about this data, we have definitely now taken two steps back. 
Yeah, um, I mean, they, I, I don't really. I mean, I can understand why the the it was it was suspended at the beginning or for a while at COVID nineteen. But do you think this kind of continual suspension of it makes any sense? I mean, really, what is the rationale for continuing it? Um, are they just worried about what it'll show? I mean, I suppose there's no knowing really. Um, well, so the rationale by the Equality and Human Rights Commission was essentially that employers are under lots of pressure because of COVID. Um, and, and I'm sure that's right, that everyone is under pressure from COVID. But I think if it's the equality initiatives that you cancel rather than other initiatives, then that's that's when you're sending out a worrying signal about their importance. Yeah. Um, and that's particularly the case given the impact that COVID has had on women. Exactly, which which we'll come to. Um, it just seems it, it's all, this, all, this kind of thing always seems to happen where there's a crisis, everyone retrenches to a previous position. And in this case, the previous position wasn't a great one in terms of equality. Exactly. Um, so it, it seems a bit lazy, personally, from my perspective, um, uh, which is not to, to pick on on, uh, on them, but because, uh, of course, it's a, it's a problem everywhere. Um, uh, so, I mean, you've... Um, uh, you have been involved, obviously, in litigation involving um, in, involving equal pay. Um, do you want to talk about the the, uh, the Samir Ahmed case? Um, and obviously, I should say that when one looks at equal pay and, and gender pay gap reporting, we're looking at slightly different things. Um, and the issue in the equal pay claims um, against the BBC were that men and women were doing equal work and being paid different amounts. Um, as you know, from example, the, the, the uh, Carrie Gracie example, she was one of four editors and everyone else was being paid significantly more than her. Um, but you, I think, Reagan, you just wanted me to touch upon um, the Samira Ahmed case and how the BBC approached it and the way they argued that the litigation. Um, and the BBC did what a lot of employers do when faced with a discrimination claim. They set out to discredit the claimant, Samira, and they set out to devalue the skills and knowledge, her skills and knowledge and expertise. Um, and they did that, you know, through a number of different ways. Um, but one of the rather odd ways they went about it was by um, essentially devaluing one of their own channels. Because part, part of the argument, or part of their argument, was that points of view were shown on BBC One, whereas Newswatch, the programme presented by Samira, was initially shown on the BBC News channel. And so they spent a lot of their witness statements and their time uh, it, arguing, well, the news channels are vastly inferior channel to BBC One. It's a niche channel. No one really watches it. This is their own TV channel, right? Um, so we actually had media reports saying, why are the BBC knocking their own news channel? And the reason was is because it was part of their argument as to why there should be a pay differential. Um, but in fact, uh, the news channel, I had to then make the case of the news channel. The news channel is one of the most important sources of news in the UK and in, in fact around the world. And a staggering number of people do actually uh, tune into the news channel to get their daily news. Um, so I had to rebuild the case for the new cha news channel to um, show that there wasn't such a big difference in their roles after all. Uh, and then a second thing that they did, uh, which... I think, funnily enough, is based itself on gender stereotypes, was they argued, essentially, that Jeremy Vine was funny and Samira Ahmed wasn't. You know, male humour, laddishness, all that sort of stuff. Oh, he can tell a joke. Um, and they essentially were arguing that points of view was humour and entertainment. And we had some evidence about the fact that Jeremy Vine had worn a wig on one or two occasions, whereas Newsnight was serious 
and therefore uh, their argument was you, get, you should get less money. Um, and uh, the Employment Tribunal's conclusion on that one was um, probably one that most broadcasters won't be very keen on, which they said, well, if you're a TV presenter, you just read out a script. It's all about whether you're inherently funny or not. It's about what the script says, which I think is probably something that a lot of TV presenters uh, wouldn't be uh, terribly happy about. But, but that was the tribunal's conclusion. Um, and in any event, they, they did find that, you know, points of view wasn't a sort of entertainment show in a sort of ha-ha-ha way that, that was being suggested. Um, so, I mean, those were the sorts of arguments that they ran. They, I mean, they ran, ran quite a lot of different arguments to try and differentiate um, Samira from Jeremy, but I thought those two were particularly interesting given the, the problems they led the BBC um, into. Yeah. Well, it's extraordinary what people, what arguments people will throw out to try and defend the status quo, um, which actually, now that Ivana's back and starts to pounce on you, Ivana, uh, as soon as you're back, but brings me back to, we can go back to the pay transparency issue and uh, not to jump around too much, but um, I suppose what, what challenges, you're actually somebody who at a legislative level is involved in trying to bring in pay transparency legislation. So you're, you're going to be able to give us a very a great, unique view of that. Um, what challenges did you face? Uh, what pushback? I mean, I, I anticipate there must have been some um, in, in, in trying to get that done. Um, well, thanks for the question, Regan, and the invitation to speak. I hope everyone can hear me. Sorry about all the technical glitches. We're plagued this morning with them. Um, and I'm just interest, very interested to hear Claire speak about gender stereotyping and the, the sort of, you know, these sort of invisible barriers that women come up against, like this idea about clubability and humour. And I suppose over the years, both in my role as a lawyer and an academic and also, of course, as a politician, I've... Um, been involved in doing quite a number of studies on gender discrimination across the legal profession. We published one in 2003 called Gender Injustice, where we found a lot of evidence of these invisible structural barriers to women's uh, career progression, particularly when women are around uh, 30s, early 40s, uh, when childcare responsibilities tend to be overwhelmingly shouldered by women rather than by their male colleagues. And then I did a study in 09 for women on on. Uh, women's career progression in politics. And we coined the phrase there, which has become widely uh, known here in Ireland, about the five C's uh, encapsulating the barriers that women face. Those five C's being lack of cash, lack of confidence, an old boy's culture, lack of childcare facilities. And in politics, those four C's, by the way, are cut across all sorts of professions and jobs for women. But we found in politics, a fifth C, candidate selection procedures were holding women back. And therefore, we worked on bringing forward gender quota legislation for politics, which has had some success here in Ireland in increasing the numbers of women elected. But I mean, when you say, Regan, you know, um, about gender pay gaps and transparency, I suppose that was one of the C's we found to operate across politics, across all sectors, that women were earning less than men. And this is so well documented, as everyone knows, EU figures, OECD figures, and so on. And uh, when we talk about a pay gap, we talk about that gap between hourly, hourly earnings of men and women. And in in Ireland, it's estimated to be about 14%, 1-4%. And that's persistently remained the case, even when we've had equal pay legislation enabling individual women, of course, to take the sort of actions that Claire talks about, where they're being discriminated against in their own workplaces. But at a structural level, we haven't yet implemented in Ireland the wage transparency laws that we've seen across different EU countries in Britain and in Australia too. Actually, Australia, we were very interested in this model. So back in 2017, to try 
try and address this in the Labour Party we brought for the Labour Party. I brought forward a bill um, requiring that would have, if brought into law, required all companies with more than 50 employees to publish data showing pay rates broken down by gender across the organisation. Now, our bill passed all stages in the Senate, the upper house, or Shannon, and it is now currently before the Dáil or lower house. It was overtaken by the government's uh, government bill in 2019. Uh, but unfortunately, the government didn't pursue their bill with enough priority. So really, when you say what's the big barrier holding back, it's inertia. You know, the reality is I've spoken at quite a number of employment law conferences over the years, human resource manager conferences, trade union conferences. Everyone in Ireland is is anticipating that we will have pay transparency or pay reporting legislation in place very soon. And so lots of organisations and companies are already gathering the data they need and taking steps now to tackle any gender pay gap disclosed by the data because it's a diagnostic test, this sort of legislation. But unfortunately, there's just been a stalling by government. Now, I actually brought the relevant minister in to the Shannon last week, Roderick O'Gorman here, to ask him, uh, can we see progress on gender pay gap law? Why don't you just take the Labour bill, which is at a very advanced stage, or are you going to bring in your own? Now, he has promised me uh, uh, in, on the public record that he'll bring forward the legislation. Uh, indeed, he said he'll be amending his own... the the government's previous bill, the previous government's bill, uh, the 2019 bill, he'll be bringing forward significant amendments to that within the next fortnight. So we're anticipating uh, legislation very shortly here in Ireland on that. And I think, although it won't be the same as the, la the Labour bill is probably more radical, 50 employees plus, I think the government bill is likely to apply to larger firms than that and perhaps to have less, um, less strong remedies. We have quite strong remedies I can talk about separately, but, you know, um, enabling an um, the Human Rights Commission here to take action uh, requiring employers to adopt equality plans, equality action plans if they have a gender pay, pay gap and indeed providing the Commission with power to enforce uh, um, inaction on the action on those plans. So, you know, we'll see what happens. The Minister has said he's going to look at remedies and he's going to strengthen the previous government version, which was quite weak, the 2019 version, but we're awaiting developments. But I think we can all anticipate there will be pay, leg uh, pay gap legislation in place very shortly and that will enable us to see then the extent to which gender pay gaps exist across different organisations. And I should say, finally, our state broadcaster, of course, has already here in Ireland, has the RTE has disclosed significant gender pay gap in their own data that's been in the public domain now for a number of years. Yeah, so uh, broadcasters in Ireland facing the same problem as, as in the UK, obviously. Um, I, I, when you said he was going to be bringing forward amendments, I was concerned it was going to be watering it down, uh, which uh, you know is always the risk. Uh, would you? Uh, uh, it, so it's good to hear that um, he's talking about strengthening it. In terms of the enforcement mechanisms you were talking about, um, I mean, I mean, obviously enforcement is is very important. What kind of what kind of thing had you proposed? Did you, had, had you seen it work elsewhere? Yes, we have. I mean, I said when I was introducing our bill in 2017 that I believe in the carrot and the big and the stick approach. And certainly we were looking at countries like Australia where you have not only sanction, but also incentive incentives in place for employers so that you have uh, very public um, uh, awards for companies that have addressed a gender pay gap or that or whose figures disclose no gender pay gap. And, you know, if we look at Britain, for example, we see really big differences between the ways in which companies' data has come forward. I mean, Primark, I think, had no gender pay gap. Across airlines, where you where you would expect to see quite big gender, you, you would expect, and we did see big gender pay gaps in different airlines in Britain where, you know, typically 
the majority, yeah, lower paid, you have occupational gender segregation, lower paid cabin crew, more likely to be women, higher paid pilots, higher management, more likely to be men. But the difference there I was interested in was that some airlines had very detailed action plans to address that and very innovative ways in which they were looking to bring women up to bec- to train as pilots, for example. And EasyJet easy famously jet. had a very, very yeah. clearly outlined plan, whereas Ryanair had very little to say about how they were going to address this. So part of it is incentivizing and uh, part of it is incentivizing employers, encouraging equality action plans and so on. But our legislation did have, our bill did propose ultimately where an employer fails to take action required by the Human Rights and Equality Commission, that then there could be a, a criminal sanction ultimately. And I suppose what we were doing was in our bill, we were drafting it to um, to build upon existing statutory framework that's underused here in Ireland. So we have in fact existing legislation empowering the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission to take enforcement actions They just in, in ter- uh, on equality issues, but they haven't done so to date. So we were trying to build on an existing framework rather than creating a whole new entity. Um, now, we'll see whether the government adopts that proposal. They didn't accept our view that the Human Rights and Equality Commission was the appropriate body. The Commission itself has expressed doubt about whether it's sufficiently resourced at present to take on the role we'd, we had suggested for it. So the government's proposal proposals um, would build on instead on, as I understand it, on the existing industrial relations machinery and wouldn't move to the Equality Commit- and Human Rights Commission. So, a, so in other words, there's some, dis- some differences in our legislative bills, not only on the size of the employer to whom the legislation will apply, but also how it's to be enforced and which, which institutional structure is it going to be going through. Of course, the industrial relations mechanisms would need to be greater resourced as well, uh, from my experience, in order to deal with something extra. But um, that's a... a And and certainly, yeah, what the government had also envisaged, I should say, was that the data gathering, that big piece would be done, in fact, by government departments. So that before you got to... We had anticipated that the commission might gather the data, but that's a huge task in itself. So before we even got to enforcement, there's a question about where does the data... Who compiles this data and publishes it? Um, Carl, I've, I've left you out of the conversation, I'm afraid, for too long. Um, uh, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about uh, Sweden's experience. I mean, you, people will talk about uh, Scandinavia being far ahead um, in relation to equal pay uh, and gender equality generally because of various different um, mechanisms that you've put in place. Uh, do you want to talk us through that and, and, and where things are right now? Well, I, I think we pride ourselves about it uh, to some extent uh, and, and then sometimes we are delusional when it comes to actually how far we've come because in some areas when you look at the numbers we have not come as far as we thought we'd come but, uh, but, but still there, there are a lot of sort of regulations in place. The first Equality Act in Sweden was enacted in 1979 uh, I, for gender equality. Then uh, I thought it would be earlier, but I've, I sort of researched it a bit. And, and there, there, there has been previous legislation, but the first real Gender Equality Act was, was enacted in 1979. And then that was amended several times. And sort of the latest incarnation is the Discrimination Act from 2018 which then also includes six other grounds for discrimination, such as sexual orientation, uh, age, uh, religion, ethnicity, etc. Uh, but, but sort of the start of the whole discrimination discussions in Sweden was, of course, when it came to gender equality. Uh, so that's been on the table for the last 50 years, I would say, at least, uh, from, from on the political sides. Uh, so in 2018, sort of the, the, the new things that came up then was that we already had, we, we already got them, the, 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 the 
obligation for companies to take active measures to try to try to reach uh, pay equality. So that means that all companies with more than 10 employees has to make a salary review every year. Uh, it's no, there's no sort of public reporting measures made, but they have to disclose this to their collective bargaining uh, parties. So the unions have the right to sort of look at the numbers. Uh, so in, uh, all companies with more than 10 employees have to do a salary review. And if you have more than 25 employees, you also have to do a sort of active measures review when it comes to all sorts of employment or uh, work environment issues, not only discrimination, but also work environmental issues it needs to be reviewed and you need to have action plans. So this has to sort of be done continuously during the year. You have to look at where you're at, what to do about it, and then follow up. And then you sort of start start all over again. And, and then to disclose that to your, to your collective bargaining pardon. Uh, then, of course, we also have to report in our annual reports to the company authority uh, the distribution between men and women at leading positions in the company. So at the uh, board members, CFO, CEO, all that, that needs to be disclosed in the annual report. Yeah. And uh, as of now, I think that for major companies in the stock exchange, uh, we are closing in on 40% on women representation on the boards which was the target of the government. I think we're at 38 or 39, something like that. If you look at companies in general, they're around 25 or 30% uh, women representation on, on the board, on the high level of the companies. Because just as Ivana and Clara said, the, the big difference when it comes to pay gap is not really when you have equal jobs, is that men usually hold the higher positions. So, so when you look at pay gap in Sweden, you have a pay gap of about 10 to 12% in general between men and women but if you look at people holding similar positions then the pay gap is four percent which is really uh, really unexplainable as well four percent is a lot of money if you look at the whole lifetime of uh, of mm -hmm. salaries but it's still a lot less than the 12 percent when you look at sort of the labor market in general which is due to, to the fact that women hold lower paid lower paid jobs and also work part-time a lot more than men and that's still and that's still a fact, even though we don't have all the four C's that Ivana was talking about, because we have free childcare. <laughs> so, so it shouldn't really be, 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 be a matter. But, but women are still staying home more than men. Uh, well, I'll come back to the parental leave, I, I think, a bit later. But, but, uh, but, but just to take the discrimination part first, uh, that, that's the regulations then with active measures and, and salary reporting. Uh, but it's also interesting to know how the Labour Court has sort of looked at this historically, and it's not always an easy case to bring to the court because the court will look at, you know, is the salary uh, deviation between men and women, is it purely because of gender? Or are there other neutral factors that will play in here? So if you go to court and if you go to the labor court, you have to prove, you have to show that there is a gender factor involved there. That's the only thing that the that the plaintiff or the employee will have to show. And then it's up to the employer to show that there are other factors that actually cause the the, the sort of the deviation between men and women or other discrimination factors. Then, so so there's a, there's been a lot of cases involving hospitals where, where for instance, you compare an anesthetic nurse with a medical engineer or a midwife with a other medical engineer, and you say you know they have the same education, they have the same responsibility, uh, they sort of 
have the same burden when it comes to sort of having responsibilities towards the employer and they actually have four or five years at university, all of them. And how come then that the engineers are paid like 20% more than the anesthetic nurse? And, uh, and, and the courts have sort of found that there is no reason for that really when it comes to gender. You know, there is a discrepancy there. They should really be paid the same because their jobs are equal when it comes to responsibility and education. But there are neutral grounds for the employers that they choose to pay the engineers more. And, and basically that's been because they have another market. Uh, midwives and nurses can only work in hospitals. The engineers can also work for an Ericsson or any of the big sort of uh, tech companies, which means that it's a different labor market. And in order for the hospitals to compete for the right person uh, to get the job, they have to pay more. Yeah, And that has nothing to do with gender then in the court's view. Or they have looked at sort of experience and, and other neutral factors. So when it comes to these cases, I would say it's pretty much 50-50 when it comes to if you win or lose in court, if you manage to sort of prove that there is a gender gap, you still have to prove that there are no other reasons, or it's enough that the employer then shows that there are other reasons for the gap, and then the court will sort of buy that. So, so it's not always an easy sort of win, just because, just because you can sort of prove that they're actually equal jobs, but they're all equal pay. You touched there earlier yeah. uh, on childcare, um, and I, I know I think again, um, Sweden would be sort of held up as as yeah. having very uh, progressive, mm -hmm. uh, well, childcare arrangements, mm -hmm. so paternity leave yeah. and, and leave generally. Um, how important have that? I, I think it, um, it, it's very important, but it's still sort of a problem because we we have four hundred eighty days of paid parental leave. Out of those four hundred eighty days, sixty days has to be taken by either of the parents. So, so you can switch whatever you want, but in, but in but in practice, then two months has to be taken out by the dad, <laughs> uh, because that's still that's still the way it works, you know. And it's been a lot of talk about increasing that to six months, uh, which I think would be a good idea to sort of equal things out. But it hasn't sort of reached legislation yet, so we'll see where that ends, ends up uh, in the end. But but it's still the, the fact that the majority of days are taken out by women. Uh, those 480 days uh, and for each month that a woman takes up parental leave their sort of salary level or, or life salary as compared to a man goes down by 0.7 percent you look at the funny thing is that if a man takes out parental leave it will go down 1.5 percent so it's actually the employers are sort of counting on women taking up parental leave, and it's sort. Of, but if a man takes it out, that's a negative from the employers. So, so there's actually a larger in, decrease in salary over a lifespan for a man who takes out parental leave than for a woman, which is sort of strange in, in a way as well. Uh, and then, of course, it's easier to take it out in one swoop. So if you're sort of you're away from the office for twelve months. It's worse if you take it out, you know, month there, month there, or month there. Uh, when you look at the numbers, uh, so so we still have some ways to go in in order to sort of. And, and why does women take out more parental leave? Well, well, because the men usually hold uh, the higher salaried employment, and since you only get eighty percent of your salary up to a threshold, so if you make more than let's say fifty thousand euros per year, you will not get anything on on the money above that. You'll get eighty percent up to about. Or forty-five thousand euros, something like that. So, so it's easy mathematics. You know, the the, the person with a lower income will stay home, and that's mm -hmm. usually the woman. So this sort of perpetuates the system. Yeah.
Yeah, exactly. So, so I think the problem is less. You have child care, you have parental leave, and everything, but it's still uh, a fact that in most cases it will be the woman who sort of draws the shorter straw here uh, when it comes to equal pay, even with this system. So we 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 have a ways to go. And I, I just think, as a curiosity, you know, all the other Nordic countries have had female prime ministers. Sweden has not. So there's still there's still one position that that we need to sort of think about when it comes to really achieving uh, equality, not only in pay but also when it comes to positions in society. Yeah. Well, same in Ireland, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Ivana, could be. Um, I, I was struck there, um, you just, you mentioned about the, the amount of people or the, you know, increasing the percentage of women at higher levels in companies. And it's something um, I had actually meant to talk to Claire about as well, because it's something uh, the Euro European Commission has also talked about uh, increasing female participation and board, board level. And there was a, there was a study in I think 2016 or something in the UK about this, which is since then, FTSE 100 companies have tried to put more women at board level. Um, and uh, recently enough, they announced, you know, and everybody was patting themselves on the back, you know, it was up 50%. Um, and then subsequently, it, it turned out actually still women are being paid two thirds less, not just one third less, like two thirds less um, in financial companies, because in reality, the women they were bringing in uh, were being brought in at non-exec levels with, with lower responsibilities. Um, so it hasn't bringing, you know, it, I suppose it's it, like, I suppose, as I said at the beginning of this, this panel, this is a war on multiple fronts um, and you address one thing, it doesn't kind of completely address um, everything. And, and that's one of the, you know, it's one of the ways in which we're going, it's going to help things, but it certainly doesn't seem to uh, be a fix all. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think we're seeing a wave of tokenism when it comes to a women on boards and in senior roles. So um, companies quite like, <laughs> Able to publish their pictures of women on International Women's Day and show quite how many women they've got in the organisation. And they like the PR value of having lots of pictures of women, but they don't want to pay them the same as men and they don't want to give them any real power. Yeah, and um, yeah. And that seems to be a kind of across the board. Um, the, the other thing that, that struck me about what uh, Carl was talking about there was um, in relation to uh, union involvement or the fact that there's, the, that there's a strong um, collective bargaining um, aspect to, to the setup in Sweden. Um, uh, Ivana, you know, what would you say is the role for trade unions in conjunction with all the other mechanisms that are being put in, put, that are being put in place or hopefully being put in place in, in terms of pay transparency and trying to increase female participation and everything else? I mean, do we need do we need more union agitation for for equal pay? Um, you know, well, I suppose my experience certainly is that the unions have really led on this, and that, uh, for example, within RTE, it's been the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, that has really um, publicised the gender pay gap and has really been pushing management. Even just in the last few weeks, we've seen reports again about uh, a renewed assault uh, within RTE by the unions to ensure that um, the gender pay gap there is tackled. So, and certainly, we worked with the unions closely on drafting and bringing forward our legislation. 
and they've been hugely supportive, as have as have other groups. I mean, there's a huge interest and a huge momentum coming from NGOs, from civil society. The National Women's Council has been to the fore, um, and uh, indeed, the, um, just talking about women on boards, there's the Thirty Percent Club here in Ireland, you know, which is really trying to push for more women to be uh, on boards. Uh, I, you know, your point about a war on multiple fronts and things, you know, and and always there being another level, you know, that's that's so true. I mean, we did when we did our research on. Uh, women in law, um, the big the big pressure point was women becoming partners in solicitors' firms. I'm told now that uh, from from colleagues in different firms that more and more women are making partner, but very few women are making equity partner, which is the highest level. In you know anyone who's a solicitor will be well aware of this. So similarly, we're seeing in, at the bar, you know, a gap, you know, that that difficulty in getting to senior council ranks. So very, so much lower numbers of women there, uh, albeit it is changing. And there's been you know there's been great improvements among the judiciary, interestingly. We've about 30% of our judges are women. And that's, you know, that's really changed in the last few years as there's been a kind of great awareness about the need for more uh, gender balance among the judiciary. But, you know, when we were publishing our legislation, there was a very, I suppose, a, a sort of, you know, dismaying report from Morgan McKinley, actually, pointing out that the gender pay gap was wide, widened as women got more experience and more uh, professional qualification. I mean, they said the gender pay gap was 10% for women and men with BS. It rose to 33% when you compared women and men with executive MBAs. And again, at levels of experience, it, it was widening. So, you know, there's, there's, there's loads of fronts on which this has to be challenged. And I'm, you know, very interested in Carl's description of the Swedish childcare model, which we can only envy, Carl, here, here in Ireland. Yep. You know? but, uh, yep. but clearly, as you say... I, I, use, I use five months. So <laughs> I was close anyway. And, I, and I'm a partner of the law firm. I was Did away you? for... Wow. Uh, Five months in 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 total for <laughs> so at least I use yeah setting an exceptional record. A lot of it's about culture, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. have younger brothers who work in IT, and it's much more acceptable yeah. in younger th that area, that yeah. sector, for men to take yeah. parental leave as yeah. they have done. You know, even though here in Ireland until recently parental leave for men wasn't paid. Now we have paid paternity leave and there's new parents leave and we are, so we're changing. But certainly it's all about, it's about culture as much as, yeah. as childcare, as pushing the structures in place for childcare. And on, and as you say, Carl, that catch 22, where, yeah. where women are in less, they're more likely to take up the leave, whether it's paid or unpaid, because of course the the, the household loses out if the lower earner uh, doesn't take the leave. So that, that's the catch 22. So it is about tackling culture. Yeah. Uh, as, as much as anything else. And that's, of course, the hardest thing. I mean, we looked at lots of models in terms of law and, and politics as to how you can tackle culture. And a lot of it is about visibility. You can't be what you can't see, role models and so on. But, um, but you know, it, it's, it's undoubtedly, it's a very tough challenge to try yeah. and work through that. But yeah, trade unions, sorry, to come back to your original question, Megan, trade unions have been very supportive, but businesses too. I mean, as I said, you know, I've addressed a lot of different conferences run by different sectors. And I'm, what we found is widespread acceptance and indeed welcoming of uh, pay transparency legislation and an expectation that it will come in soon and, and everyone's ready for it so and ready to take the next steps to, to, to address a pay gap where it exists. And I think a lot of companies want to show that they're doing well too. You know, there's that idea that it, it's a good thing. Easy, EasyJet got great publicity actually from the, the you know, from the uh, reporting worldwide about those figures in England. And again, in Australia, you see companies really, really trumpeting their achievements where they have tackled a gender pay gap. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually, the, I mean, the cultural thing that you raise there, I mean, that's so important and it's the hardest thing in many ways to move. Um, a culture, I suppose, doesn't move very quickly. But it's just something that came to my came to mind while you were speaking there. Um, I think a number of years ago, there was that idea that the reason why women didn't get paid more is because they didn't ask for it. So the theory was, well, then you should ask. But then subsequent studies showed that women who ask are actually penalised, um, that it's seen yeah. being too assertive and aggressive. Um, so it, it's kind of a, a cultural change that needs to change from the cradle where, you know, and I mean, everybody knows this, but the, the fact that little girls are told off for being bossy uh, where little boys aren't. And it, it needs that kind of cultural change. Is just, it is. It's very hard. To that, thanks, Regan. And actually, that yeah. just one final point. I mean, and Carl was talking about that issue about neutral factors, so-called. You know, I, I've debated this issue with so many people who say, but women choose not to put themselves forward. It's choice. It's not gender. It's individual choice. And of course, that utterly misses the structural barriers that are, um, that are the, uh, represent the context in which women are making the choices. So why are more women, in, even in Sweden, choosing to stay home rather than their male colleagues? You know, and again, it's about cultural context. And uh, and I think to suggest that that's somehow neutral and divorced from any idea of gender or the conditioning we're all getting from babies, you know, that really misses the point. Indirect discrimination. You exactly. discriminate by, just by the system in itself. Yeah. But I, I, I always like to add, there, as, as Regan mentioned, I taught at the university since well, plus 20 or something. And there is a tremendous change. I don't have any statistics or anything, but... If you look at a, a starting law school class, since I taught, since I teach at the introduction level, first ten weeks, uh, we, we've gone from I would say 50-50 men and women at law school in my classes when I started twenty years ago to seventy thirty predominantly women today. So, so the legal profession is becoming. I would say that in courts we'll soon have a majority of female judges, and I think the prosecutors are already. I think uh, a majority of female prosecutors. So, so some areas in the in the law are, are are becoming not even gender equal. It's actually sort of tipping the other way around. And what's going to be interesting to see then if is that will have any sort of effect on salaries. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, Claire will probably have a view on Britain. But can I just yeah. say this? When I started law in '85 as a student, mm -hmm. we were 50. But there's a pipeline fallacy that assumes that just as women are entering in lower in larger numbers, and indeed we've had the same pattern you describe in our law schools as well. It doesn't mean that women inevitably trickle up the pipeline. You know, uh, unfortunately, they tend to trick. There's an attrition uh, we found in our study, and it's a replicated elsewhere. So, yeah, sorry, Claire, you wanted to. Uh, well, I was going to say they've done some recent um, studies on pay at the bar in the UK. And what they found was that the only area of law where women are paid more than men at the bar is a very badly paid area of law, which is uh, childcare proceedings. Mm -hmm. uh, some areas of the law, women are being paid 60% less than men. That's sort of commercial chancery, things like that. And then picking up on your point, I think that you made, Ivana, about the judiciary. I mean, again, women now in the lower rungs of the judiciary um, are about sort of 50-50. So in employment mm -hmm. tribunals in the UK, it is about 50% uh, female judges. But as soon as you go above that, um, you know, all the women disappear. So ironically, in the UK, in our highest discrimination court, the Employment Appeal Tribunal, we've got three judges there, three permanent judges, and they're all men. <laughs> no women in our highest discrimination court. And then one looks at the Court of Appeal, hardly any women, and just two women on the Supreme Court. Um, and that just... Well, no, because Lady Hell's gone. 
I mean, they're obviously still good, but you know, not not Lady Hill. No, um, and I think the absence of women, Supreme Court, you know, radically affects the sorts of decisions that we see that don't take into account, you know, a sort of overall perspective of life. It's a very narrow, sort of very narrow view of, of life, and so we do desperately need more senior women. Um, to join the judiciary and to join the senior level of the judiciary. But that's not going to happen until women rise up the legal profession. Mm. And they're not going to do that unless, you know, well, it's not really that, but um, this is a bar-related phenomenon. I don't know to what extent it, it happens in law firms. But they've published some amazing statistics recently about male sponsorship in the bar. Mm. And what you see is some QCs are almost entirely working with male juniors. Mm. And so you can have a, a male QC and a female QC in the same chambers where they're choosing from the same pool of junior lawyers and the male QC will be working 80, 90% of the time with male juniors. And the female QC might be working 50, 60% of the time with female juniors. And they're the same pool of lawyers that they're picking from. But what's interesting actually is that some female QCs are... Um, it, worse than male QCs in their own chambers so it's not just it's not just a you know senior men choosing to work with junior men it's also some senior women choosing to work with junior men as well so I, I think that's fascinating it's good I should say I, I trained as a barrister in yeah. London and in chambers and found the bar in London much more gendered actually much more I came back then to Dublin and uh, women in, in, in the bar in England and Wales when I was there in the early 90s were not allowed to wear trousers I mean outrageous whereas when I came back to Dublin I was amazed to discover we were far more liberated in many ways and the reason was Mary Robinson had absolutely blazed a trail as a senior mm -hmm. practicing barrister and insisted it, very, it seems very small but actually symbolically important that women would wear trousers if we wished and uh, and indeed, in so many other ways, had created this visibility as a role model. Um, and, you know, just a very small, it's amazing for me to see just, you know, as a young, as a starting out lawyer, just the difference that visible role models can have at that high profile level. Uh, I'm, I'm conscious of time um, because we've we've only got about six minutes left, uh, even though I, I, there's so much to talk about still. But I think before we go, uh, we should probably touch on the effects of COVID-19 um, and we probably only get a very small amount of time to do it. Um, but it obviously has had a huge effect. I mean, uh, I, looking at some statistics, um, uh, I think mothers are 40 percent, 47 percent more likely to have lost their jobs so far. Um, two thirds of part time workers lost their jobs. Uh, um, or sorry, is it women make up two thirds of part-time workers in, where jobs uh, went down 70% in the first 11 weeks of the pandemic. These are figures which may be UK specific actually, because I, I, I read it in The Guardian. Um, but we do know from, from other studies that women have been more likely to lose their job in the pandemic so far, going back to 2017 levels of women in work rates um, and to become inactive after that, which is the important point because you know, you're out, of, you're going to be out of the workforce and then it's harder to get back in. And there are long term effects for careers and for, again, pension levels, which is pretty key. Um, so, I mean, this is all arising from the fact that there is this deep rooted gender segregation across sectors and the, the type of roles that have been exposed to um, restrictive measures have been more female than male. Um, women's jobs seem to be slightly more tele teleworkable but then uh, women have to take more responsibility for childcare at home. So there's a greater chance of conflict there and more 
likelihood is of um, of women having to take time off or take career breaks as a result. Um, so, I mean, does anybody have any views there about what can be done or what the or, or what are we facing? I, I have some concerns that when the pandemic comes to the end and, and things like holding off on, you know, people on layoff haven't been able to, nobody's been making them redundant so far, but there's going to be an explosion of terminations potentially when all of that um, comes to an end. How is it all going to fall out? They're saying, Reagan, there's going to be what's, what they're calling a she session. So in other words, because um, significantly more women have been furloughed than men, um, it's likely that a significant number of those workers who've been furloughed will lose their jobs when the furlough scheme comes to an end. And that's why they're expecting this she session. Um, but part of that also will be that, that if when you're selecting individuals for redundancy, you're taking into account their performance over the last 18 months or so, then that will be affected by all the other data that you just mentioned. So, for example, the fact that women have been doing more unpaid work at home, they've been doing more unpaid childcare, and a significantly greater proportion of women have been homeschooling children. And so that's obviously affected their ability to perform at work, which will then affect who is chosen or who's selected for redundancy. Um, so I think we can expect that when the furlough scheme ends in the UK, um, we're going to see um, a significant number of uh, redundancies coming through. Um, and a number of those, I think, will be indirectly discriminatory, if not directly discriminatory. Yeah, potentially a lot of litigation arising out of, out of COVID-19 as well as everything else. Um, and in circumstances where, I don't know about the UK, but in Ireland, the, the tribunals are quite backed up uh, with uh, hearings not having happened. Uh, in, a, in a great way. Um, so, I mean, I know, uh, does, uh, Carl, have, has Sweden taken any measures to try and ameliorate the facts against... Mm, you know, no, not really. The, the, the discussion has more been on uh, on uh, young people and uh, new arrivals, uh, migrants, because they have been the hardly, most hardly hit by, by COVID. Uh, I, I would imagine that uh, a lot of women have become unemployed because they're also in the hospitality sector with, with you know, hotels and restaurants and all, and all that. But there has not been a really big discussion about that. Uh, and, and when it comes to redundancy, since we follow the last in first out principle uh, in redundancy situations in the union and negotiating that, I, I don't think there will be an overly sort of gender structured sort of redundancy uh, proceeding when this is over it, it will follow the regular sort of order uh, but but i don't have any statistics when it comes to we call it short-time work then before mm -hmm. long uh, how many women and men are on that and so on and so forth uh, so, so it's not been really a big issue it's more an issue about people being long time unemployed and that's mostly young people and uh, and non-swedish born people Which are, which are very significant yeah, issues. For another day. Also for another day <laughs> yeah, both significant here too, but I think uh, the impact upon women that uh, you've outlined, Regan, has been really clear here as well. And I've written about it, I had a piece in the Irish Times a few months ago about just that, about women falling back almost by default into traditional uh, stereo gender stereotypes, you know, doing the bulk of homeschooling, so-called, what a euphemism. And... Uh, um, you know, and and losing out so much. So I think we're going to have to take account of that 
once we come through the pandemic and we are we can call it furlough either the employment wage subsidy scheme once that comes to an end once the pup the employment um, rate is once all of these are winding up we're going to have to ensure through you know a central level through legislation through government schemes that um that this gendered impact is taken into account as well as the impact on younger people as you say and the impact on those who've been in, in hardest hit in hospitality sector well. I think one of the main reasons that we haven't closed down school is just because of the gender issue uh, that we have tried to avoid to the large extent that a lot of people have to be be home with their kids so so, so schools up to ninth grade have been open all the time except for you know outbreaks in certain areas but otherwise they're, they're, so, so this house is empty even though I've got kids <laughs> they're all in school and been through the parents we can only look on in envy but there are other yeah. implications for that i'm thinking <laughs> of some of my friends tearing their hair out <laughs> um actually everything you said it, it's something that came up there i mean the, in terms of uh, migrants um something a note i took of something there that uh the the, gen, the glo global gender pay gap <laughs> is even greater for women of color and immigrant yeah. women so yeah. i mean it, it's actually a racial issue as well um, which again is something we could have a whole session on um uh rather than trying to deal with it today but it, it's something else to bear in mind that, that there is a greater i suppose there, there is a picture there's a greater picture to this there are other implications for this that's very important to address it not only from a gender perspective but also for racial equality um yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, i think we have run out of time unfortunately um just to, as a as a kind of a, a wind up uh my I was talking to my husband about this and he was he was kind of in a rose tinted way saying that COVID-19 might give us the opportunity to fix everything and um, to sort of uproot everything and change everything and bring about pay equality. I think that that may be overly optimistic, but um, I think Ivana's right. If, if so, certain steps are taken, we yeah. can certainly ameliorate the, the effects yeah. of it, hopefully. Uh, crossing fingers and touch wood, as they say. Um, I'd like to thank the panelists so much for their fantastic contributions. Um, you've all been amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, we all survived our initial technical hiccups uh, and it was really great chat so and thank everybody for attending um it's been really it's been really brilliant preparing for this panel and putting it on thank you thank you